Well, it's supposed to be baseball season, but from everything I understand, it appears that at least for a while, baseball players are going to be playing to empty fields. And I kind of know what that feels like, actually, because all these last couple weekends and for who knows how many more weekends, I continue to preach to empty worship centers, whether that's at Loring Park or Edina or right here at Eden Prairie, I got to tell you something, it feels kind of empty. And I wish that you were all here. Now, for those of you who are baseball fans, in light of the fact that you can't enjoy America's favorite pastime the way maybe you're used to doing it, you might want to pull out that movie that appeared in 1989 called The Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. In that movie, an Iowa farmer keeps hearing this voice that tells him, if you build it, he will come. Not they will come, but he will come. And of course, he builds this massive baseball field in his own cornfield, almost ruining his life and being ridiculed by others just so that he will come when it is finally built. Now, who's the he that's supposed to come? Well, if you don't remember, you'll have to watch the movie. The point of me bringing this up, however, is to remind you that that movie became a metaphor for a lot of people. A lot of people who were struggling with realizing their dreams. See, all of us, in a sense, have a field of dreams. For some people, their field of dreams is a field and a dream of a time when there's justice and equity. For other people, the field of dreams is a time of hoping for peace and prosperity. And these days, the field of dreams seems to be a day when we aren't having to deal with pandemics. But you know something? You might want to take some time at some point to talk a little bit about what your field of dreams are right now. Because I'm sure that in your life or in your family or among your friends, you're struggling with what's taking place in our culture right now, and you're wondering to yourself when certain things are going to change, and you have dreams that you hope aren't going to be put on hold very long. What are your dreams? I also want to ask another question, one that we don't oftentimes think about. But if we were to apply the field of dreams metaphor to the church, and specifically to Wooddale Church and those of you who are part of the Wooddale community, what would be our field of dreams for the church. You know, this past week I walked into the church as usual. It was very empty, very lonely here. And I remember as I was walking up the door, the thought went through my mind, how much longer are we going to have to do this? And I started thinking to myself, "I, I can't wait until things get back to being normal again. And this place is busy and we're able to worship together and All those thoughts went through my mind. But then as I have spent time talking to leading pastors and even political leaders trying to figure out when will we be able to come back to normal, well, I got to tell you something. The the bad news is nobody is sure when that's going to happen. And when we do come back, it probably won't be the normal that we were used to. In fact, there is an expert on churches, nationally speaking, who recently said it could be many, many more months before we ever get back to church as we knew it in some form or another. 
And when you think about that, it can be very discouraging. It can be very disheartening. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that the church and the future of the church is not dependent on getting back to the way it used to be. It's not dependent on coming up with some kind of new format or idea for the future. In fact, if we really want to understand God's dream for his church, so to speak, and what it will take for him to show up, all we have to do is look into the Word of God, and particularly into the book of Acts. Because there in the book of Acts, we realize what the church must do if he is to come and show up in a fresh way, in a powerful way to move and work in his church. And so I want to welcome all of you to our brand new series called Upside Down. You know, I planned this series out about eight months ago. I had no idea we'd be in the situation that we're in today. But as I've been reading through the book of Acts again and preparing for the series, I realized that it was in God's providence that I chose that we would be going through Acts this time of the year. Because as I've been reading the book of Acts, I'm rediscovering, I'm being exhilarated and encouraged that God has a vision for us of how he wants you and me to think and behave during this pandemic. In fact, I believe that God has a revival waiting for his church. That God can take the bad in this situation and turn it to a good to revive and renew his body of believers. To help us understand what I mean by that, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we discover that the church is about to be born, so to speak. Jesus, before he ascended, told his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem and something powerful was going to happen on Pentecost. Now, I'm going to tell you more next weekend about what Pentecost means. But for now, watch and listen to what Acts chapter 2 says. Here we go. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. They're speaking my language. Listen. Are they drunk? They're praising God. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed, 
What can this mean? I love the question at the end of that passage that you just had a chance to listen and read. What does this all mean? It's a great question, isn't it? I mean, what did, what did it mean when the Holy Spirit came in such a dynamic way to begin the church of Jesus Christ there in the early beginnings of the church? And what does that mean for you and me? What does Pentecost mean for us? Well, if I could put it into a principle or a big idea, it would go something like this. When God manifests his presence in and through his church, everything in and around his church is transformed. Let's read it again. When God manifests his presence in and through his church, everything in and around his church is transformed. You know, as the apostles went out, began planting churches throughout all of what we know of as Asia Minor, God began to use them and use the early church to literally turn the world upside down. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and others come to Thessalonica, it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, it wasn't the apostles. It wasn't people who were turning the world upside down. It was the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and working through the early church. God was doing dynamic and powerful things in order to send a witness out to the world that the Holy Spirit had come, that God was beginning to establish his kingdom first in the hearts of the people and eventually bring his kingdom to this world. And in those early days, my goodness, how, how the world literally was turned upside down. But as church history attests to, when the church became part of the empire under Constantine, something happened, something not very good. The church went from being this dynamic force to being this domesticated cultural experience. It began to adapt and fit into the culture. It became institutionalized. It became all about programs. It became all about politics. And it became all about business as usual. And all of a sudden, that power and that, that presence seemed to become dormant and to, to fade away. And throughout all of church history, there have been moments when God has moved and worked, when his church has been in a pinch, when it's been in a difficult place, and the people of God have cried out to him that he's brought times of refreshing, times of revival, and times of renewal. I can't help but wonder if God's allowing this situation that he didn't create, but he can certainly, he can certainly bring good out of it. To get his church's attention, to get our attention, and bring us back to what it really means to be his church. I just wonder if God is getting us out of our buildings and away from our programs and business as usual to call us back into utter dependence on him because he wants to show up. He wants to do something new and powerful with his body and through his body. I believe, I believe God is stirring and I believe with our vision of bringing hope here, near, far, God is calling us as Wooddale Church to experience him in a fresh and new way. And in order for that to begin, 
I've decided to take our series in the book of Acts, which I was going to do more of an overview like we did in the Gospel of Luke, and slow it down a little bit because I'm hearing God say some pretty profound things to me. And I think he has some pretty profound things to say to you about what it means to be his church in these days and for this season. That before we all come back together, God is wanting to do something very unique and miraculous. And to help us begin to unpack that, I want to draw your attention to a couple of principles that I think we've got to take to heart if we want to see him come, so to speak, in Holy Spirit power. So here's the first principle. And it goes like this. We need to, I need to, you need to, and those of us who are part of Wooddale Church, we need to learn to wait on God with repentant hearts. We need to learn to wait on God with repentant hearts. Now, if you were to ask the question, what does the word church mean? You would discover that both in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, and in New Testament, Greek, the church simply means called out ones. Called out ones. Now, if we're being called out from something, all right, that means that we're leaving whatever that is behind and we're moving with God in a new direction. I love the saying that says, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. It is so true. If we are going to go with God, there's some things that we've got to kind of leave behind us. And I want to use an example of the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter was called out. He was called to leave behind a whole lot of things in order to follow the Lord. In fact, at his initial calling in Luke chapter 5, Peter was literally called out of his boat in order to go and follow the Lord. So let's take Peter for example, and let's imagine that this is Peter's boat. And again, I apologize for my artwork. If there are any students there you want to draw along with me, that would be great. All right? So imagine this is Peter's boat. What are some of the things that Peter had to leave behind in his boat? I can think of several things. One of the things that he needed to leave behind was his agenda. Peter had a, had a problem of trying to insert his agenda and kind of push his agenda on Jesus and even the other apostles. Peter also had to learn to leave behind his pride and his prejudices. And my goodness, did Peter ever have some prejudices? Like, he really had a hard time thinking that grace was available to the Gentiles as well. Peter had to learn to leave behind his anger. Peter had an issue with anger. In fact, there was a bit of a violent streak in Peter as you read carefully the Gospels. He had to leave behind his foul mouth. Peter had to leave behind the memory of denying his best friend Jesus. He had to leave behind the fear and the shame and the guilt that went with that. Peter had to learn to leave behind his sense of utter failure and and his feelings of perhaps maybe I can never be used again by God because of what I've done. All of that had to be left behind if he was going to go forward with the Lord. And in order for you and for me and for us to experience the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit, and by the way, when I say Pentecostal power, 
I'm not talking about what you might have in your mind when you think of Pentecostalism these days. I'm not talking about waving of hands or, you know, rolling on the floor or speaking in tongues or anything like that. I'm talking about the fresh incoming presence of the Spirit. If we really want to experience that in our lives, then we also have to be willing to leave our boat behind. We've got to be willing to leave the things in our lives that we cannot carry forward with us and follow God. Our sins and our habits, the issues in our lives. So maybe for a moment or maybe a kind of a, a interesting exercise would be for you to draw a boat yourself later on and ask yourself, what is God calling me to leave behind in the boat? What sins, what issues, what things do I need to give up? In fact, let's take that a step further because it's not always sin that we have to leave behind. Sometimes God even calls us to leave things that aren't necessarily wrong behind us in order to move forward with him. Jesus sets the example for us. You know, Jesus left behind his place in glory, Paul says in Philippians 2, in order to come to this earth and take on human flesh and enter into our pain and our suffering and die our death so we could live his life. And so there might be some good things in our lives that we have to leave behind to follow him. In fact, God may be using this time of the pandemic when we're having to give up so many things or lose control of so many things to teach us to depend on him and not on those things which can easily become idols in our lives. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any idols in your life? I read something earlier this week that really spoke to me about idolatry in my own life. It was a devotion that was put out by a psychiatrist and theologian, Dr. Pablo Martinez. He lives in Spain. And it was all focused on the whole issue of what it means to be content, especially during this pandemic. And he cites the passage of Scripture found in the book of Philippians where we read Paul saying this to us in chapter 4. It says, For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Joseph Paul says, he says, I've learned to be content in any and every situation. And Dr. Martinez goes on and he says, listen, he says, contentment is when you can live independent of the events, circumstances, or situations in your life and be solely satisfied with Christ in Christ alone. Contentment means being at peace. And when I lack contentment in my life, oftentimes it's because something in my life, a person or a thing, has become a bit of an idol in my life. Like this church building here in Prairie or at Edina or at Loring Park, you know, it can almost become an idol for us. The danger is we can begin to think that the building is the church, and the building is not the church. The building is the place where the church meets. Therefore, when the church leaves the building, we don't stop being the church. We become the church wherever we are. 
Our jobs can become an idol. Our health can become an idol. Our relationships can become an idol. Our money can become an idol. And so right now, if you're struggling with contentment, ask yourself, what is it that you feel you need or if you could have back or could experience again would bring you contentment? And whatever that is, you got to put it in the boat and leave behind. Because we can't move forward with God if we're trying to drag the past along with us or trying to take sin with us. So in this time right now, as the apostles had to go, and the 120 gathered in the upper room and waited for the Holy Spirit to come, we also need to wait, and we need to wait with an attitude and a spirit of repentance where we say, God, if there's anything in my life or anything in our church or if there's anything we as a church are hanging on to that in any way inhibits your presence, God, we want to let it go. Because we want to be a church, Lord, where a fresh wind, a fresh fire of your presence can be known and experienced, not just by us, but those who so desperately need you. Because listen, folks, one of the things that I do know is this, that when we're allowed to start to come back together again, it's not going to be 100%. It's going to be in stages and there's just no way that we at our campuses can just come back 30% and 70% at a time because who, who's supposed to stay away then? See what I'm trying to say? How do you come halfway back? That means until we can come back 100%, we're going to have to learn to be the church in our neighborhoods. And wherever you live, the challenge for you, the vision for you and for me is, is to be God's house church in that neighborhood, in that experience, where we can have maybe 15 or 20 people together. And that's what I think the Holy Spirit is preparing us for. And it's scary, and it feels uncertain, and how do you do that, and how will this take place? That, that must be how the early followers of Jesus felt in the early church. It's met in homes. And yet that's where the Spirit showed up in such powerful ways. That takes us to our second principle. And our second principle is this. Not only do we need to learn to wait on God with repentant hearts, but we also need to joyfully surrender in a spirit of utter dependence upon God. Now, what does it mean to utterly depend on God? It means just that. It means to depend on God alone and not on ourselves, not on myself, but on him, entirely on him. Tim Keller tells us that what happened in the book of Acts was an outside to inside phenomenon. It was something on the outside that penetrated the inside of everyone. Think about it this way. Let me just kind of sketch it out here for us just a moment. Think about, think about the early followers of Christ gathered together, all right, there in the early church. And what happens initially at Pentecost is that God, think of him on the outside for a moment, literally invades their lives with the Holy Spirit. What is on the outside suddenly suddenly comes to 
the inside. Now, the reason that's so important is because it's counterculture. See, we live in a culture that says that the problem in the world is not on the inside, it's on the outside. God says, no, the problem is with you on the inside. The culture tells us that it's everything on the outside that's to blame. That if I could just change the government, if I could just change the politicians, if I could just change the left or the right, if I could just change the economy, if I could just change the climate, if I could just change my neighbor, my parents, my kids, if those people would change, if, if everything out there would be different, then the world would be better. Because the mindset is, I'm okay. It's everything out there that needs to change. God comes along and says, no, it's not what's out there that needs to change. God says, it's what's inside of you, Dale, or inside of you that needs to change. Listen carefully. If the hope of the world is based on everything outside of me changing, it'll never happen. It's the most hopeless situation you can imagine. But if the hope of the world is me changing inside by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If the hope of the world is God changing me on the inside, then everything else can begin to change. Because as I change, as I depend on the presence of God in my life, as the church, as we together depend on the presence of God in our lives, it has a dynamic effect and influence on the lives of the people who are then around us. As we begin to live out the principles of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, it says that before Jesus ascended, that he talked to his apostles, his followers, about the kingdom of God. As I learned to live out the principles of the kingdom in the spirit of God. As I learned to communicate to others what Christ has done for them. That's, that's when God shows up, so to speak. That's when he will come and he'll bring times of refreshing to his church. And of course, what we're talking about here is supernatural. What we're describing here is nothing that any of us can manufacture on our own. You don't learn it in a seminar. You don't learn it in a class. You don't work it up emotionally from yourself. What happened on the day of Pentecost had nothing to do with the people in the room waiting on God. It had everything with, to do with God coming down on the people, so to speak. And what we're looking for, what we're looking for God to do right now, is not something we can create in and of ourselves. But it is something we're waiting on God to do, and we wait with the right posture. I believe he's going to do it. If we wait with repentant hearts, if we wait with utter dependence on him, realizing God... We can't do this. Jesus didn't tell his followers, go to Jerusalem, form a committee, build a structure, hang a shingle out, and call it the first church. He said, no, go and wait on me. And I will come. And I will empower you. And so what that does is that takes us then to another very important principle. And that's our third principle. 
we need to actualize, that is realize, by faith, the reality of God's indwelling presence in our lives and in each other. I need to actualize the miracle, the supernatural miracle that's already taken place in our lives. Now listen carefully. We're going to explore this a bit more next weekend. But there's two dynamics at work here. First, there's realizing the supernatural work that God's done in me. And then there's also realizing that there are times, we've seen it throughout church history, when God seems to add to that by coming in by power and by force to do something that's truly refreshing in the midst of his people. That depends on God. It does not depend on us. However, as followers of Christ, we have received the Spirit into our lives. Therefore, I need to actualize what's already been done in my life. Look what it says once again in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now we're going to explore more of that next weekend. But the point is, it was dynamic what God was doing. Now if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll understand this whole concept of the, of the fire coming upon them, so to speak. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament, when Abraham split the sacrifices in two in Genesis chapter 15, it says God moved between them like a torch of fire. Or when God appears to Moses, it's in a burning bush. Or when God comes down on Mount Sinai, it's with smoke and fire before the people. Or when God leads them through the wilderness, a pillar of a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When they build a tabernacle, God comes in fire and glorious presence in the Holy of Holies. When they build a temple, God comes in a fire of glorious presence into the Holy of Holies. No one can get close to God. The high priest only once a year must go in and has to go very carefully lest he die. But all of a sudden, look what happens in Acts chapter 2. The fiery, glorious presence of God doesn't come to the temple or a tabernacle. He comes into and rests in his people. Man, I wish you guys were here so I could hear somebody say amen. Maybe you can say it right where you are because that is the reality. As a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God has come resident into your life and my life. We are his temple, the Apostle Paul says. That which at one time would have killed us which was untouchable, unapproachable, has now come to indwell us. And listen carefully. Why does God choose to come and indwell us this way? Well, to answer that question, let's go back to the Gospel of Luke for a moment, and let's think about what happened right after Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water. Remember what it says there? 
He says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In essence, the Father was saying to his Son, I love you, I'm fond of you, and I'm pleased with you. That's how N.T. Wright interprets that. I love you, I'm fond of you, and I'm very pleased with you. What the Father says to the Son, are you ready for this? He says to you, I want you to know right now, wherever you are watching me, in your apartment, in your home, wherever it might be right now, listen carefully. If you're a follower of Christ, follower of Christ, the Father looks at you today and he says to you, I love you, I'm fond of you, and you please me. Doesn't matter what you did last night or last week. Doesn't matter what your past is like. If you've put your faith in him and sincerely have done so, get out of the boat, leave it behind, and actualize the truth that he loves you and he's fond of you and that you please him. Until you do that, you're not going to experience his presence. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, capital S, the spirit of adoption as sons, or we could say daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, term of endearment, Daddy, God. Or Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, and because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. What a miracle, what a mystery. Crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, or we would say a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. That is, whatever belongs to Jesus now belongs to you and me. I love you, He says. Fond of you. He pleased me. Jesus makes that possible for you and for me. But we've got to actualize that. Let me give you an illustration. I'll tell you a little bit about my, my daughter, Bethany. I love my daughter like I love my children, my other sons. And when Bethany was little, she was fiercely independent. I could hardly ever get her to sit on my lap or let me hold her. She was kind of always wanting to be on her own. And so she'd, you know, walk with me holding my fingers when she was little. Or she'd walk next to me and I'd kind of have to pull her back as she kind of would stray around and keep her next to me. But every once in a while she'd do this to me. I want up. And I'd do this to her and I'd pick her up and I'd hold her and I'd give her a kiss on her cheek and I'd tell her how much I loved her. And then she would tell me that she loved me and she'd wrap her arms around my neck. I'm telling you what, that was heaven for me. And then she'd want back down again. I have two questions for you. Was she any more or any less my daughter when she was walking beside me or when I was holding her? Of course not. It didn't matter whether she was holding my, little fi my fingers while 
we were walking with her little hands or kind of walking independently next to me. Or if I was holding her and hugging her and she was hugging me, she was still my daughter. Either way, she was still my daughter. But here's the question. When does she most experience being my daughter? <laughs> she most experienced it when she let me love her. When she let me wrap my arms around her and kiss her on the face and say, I love you. And when she did that back to me, man, that's when she experienced being my, my daughter. Same thing is true with God. You're God's daughter. You're God's son. You're God's child. But you most experience being his child when you let him hug you and love you and receive it and actualize it. That's why a couple of weeks ago I shared with you the experience I had at the coffee shop one day when I was worshiping God for his greatness and in his goodness and his power and he confronted me and said, how about worshiping me because I love you, because I do love you. And I wrestled with God because I can think of all the ways and reasons why God shouldn't love me. And when I was able to finally believe and praise him for loving me, something happened for the next 12 hours that's never happened again since. I felt so completely loved by God that nothing else mattered to me anymore. It was an amazing experience. And the next morning when I got up and hoped it would be there again, the feeling and the feeling wasn't, I kind of complained to God. God said to me, now I need you to put faith in what is still a reality. And I've been learning ever since, whether I feel it or not, to believe that God loves me, that he's fond of me, and that I please him. And it's changing me, and it can change you. And if we want to know his power, if we want to know his Pentecostal power and presence in our lives, then we've got to understand that one of the main reasons why the Holy Spirit came was to communicate to you and me just how much God loves us. So here's your assignment between now and next weekend. I want you, your family, your friends, I want you to begin to wait on God with a spirit of repentance. I want you to ask God to show you what you need to leave behind. I want you to become content with him alone. Secondly, I want you to understand that what you need is, is something you can't produce. It's what God has to bring into your life. He wants you to joyfully surrender and depend on his presence. And thirdly, most importantly, I want you to take time to actualize by faith the fact that God loves you. He's fond of you. And you please him greatly. Let's pray. Father God, help us, we pray in these days, to begin to experience a fresh wind, a fresh fire, as Jim Cimbala once wrote years ago, in our lives and in our church. We don't have to be together to know you, O oh God. Though we long for that. Help us become your church. Where we are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, 
I want to give you an invitation right now for those of you who may be feeling isolated or you're not connected. We have an opportunity for you to get connected into one of our wonderful groups that meets virtually. Right below me, you're going to see on your screen, if you're watching through our website, a button that you can just click that will put you automatically into a Zoom call with Pastor Brian and we'll get you connected into a group at whatever age or stage you might be in your life. Go ahead and do that. If you're watching us from some other platform, our host right now in the chat area is giving you a link that you can click on and get you into the same experience as well. We don't want anybody to be by themselves as we go through this pandemic. We believe that the best is yet to come. Listen carefully. Not when we all finally get together again. It's about to come in the weeks ahead. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you.